and welcome to The Lodgecast, a nature and wildlife podcast brought to you by the Beaver Trust. I'm Sophie Pavel. And I'm Eva Bishop. Each month we'll be bringing you the latest news from the Beaver Trust as we start to welcome beavers back to our rivers to restore our countryside and create resilient landscapes. And we'll also explore the state of nature in the UK and speak to fascinating experts and inspiring individuals along the way. This month, we are joined by environmental consultant and all-round beaver expert, Dr. Rasheen Campbell-Palmer. Well, goodness me, Eva, we seem to find ourselves on episode five already. Can you believe it? I hardly can, but it's been a really interesting process, learning, podcasting and speaking to some fab people. And Mm. I'm really looking forward to this being the start of the adventure, really. Yeah, definitely. I'm really excited about this episode. I must say I have a bit of a, uh, between you and me, I have a bit of a uh, a girl crush on Roisin Campbell Palmer. And uh, I'm excited (laughs) to see her again. between you and me. (laughs) Between (laughs) the world. Between you and me and the internet. Anyway... Um, but spring is here yes, and we have spring. said goodbye to that chilly weather and it's above 10 degrees today here, which is absolutely awesome. Yeah, you're a double digits um, woman, aren't you? I am a double digits woman. Yeah, can't <laughs> deny it. Come to life. Eva, I would like an update, please, on those chicks of yours. So uh, just for the listeners to know, I've received a few WhatsApps of lovely pictures of cute little chicks on Eva's kitchen floor. And I would like to know how they're doing and why they're there. <laughs> Oh, they're super cute. So we've incubated some um, eggs back in January and the chicks are now three or four weeks old and growing their adult feathers, but still pretty friendly. Um, And the kitchen is absolutely covered in poo. It stinks and it's constant battle um, (laughs) with cleanliness versus children. Um, But it's great. It's great. It's nothing I can't do, can't handle at the moment. Um, no they're super they're really cool so the the next question is how many uh hens versus cockerels we're going to get the usual conundrum yeah exactly (laughs) how about you i have got nothing really exciting to report well yeah i haven't really got anything exciting apart from the next door neighbor is still building his hot tub after six months it feels like it's just never ending i know and um i think he's probably making the most of the uh lighter evenings that we're getting and a bit more daylight which is really nice actually it does Mm. make a difference you do want to be outside a bit more um maybe he's enjoying the song thrush that comes out at seven o'clock every morning i certainly am but yeah, it's a hormonal at the moment. Yeah, exciting. <laughs> right. Well, talking of birds and uh, ornithology, it's British Science Week this week, so we're going to be talking about science. And British Science Week is basically like a ten-day national celebration of all things science, technology, engineering, and maths, and loads of cool people who are in those fields. Now, one of the things that we really want to explore in this episode, in particular, is how important is an understanding of science in conservation. We've also recently had International Day of Women and Girls in Science, bit of a mouthful, but really celebrating how far women have come in the field of STEM. And it was wonderful to see so many amazing women celebrated for their work last month, wasn't it? Yeah, oh gosh, it was so inspiring. Um, But I can't help thinking sometimes that we've perhaps need to move beyond defining people's achievements by their gender, because we live in such a diverse world now. And I think it's, 
more valuable, I suppose, in this day and age when we have so many things going on and so many amazing people doing fascinating work that we must recognise people now by their expertise and by their experience um, and not overlook the fact how important that is. Mm, Yeah, totally. But before we dive too deep into the episode itself, it is time for our Beaver Fact Off. Yes, indeed. So you won last time, Eva, alas. Uh, So I'm all all ears this time. Uh, Let's see if you can top it. I shall. And this is how. I have an amphibious adaptation to explain to you today. So to prevent the entry of water, the nostrils of beavers have special round sphincters, little circular muscles that close up tightly when beavers dive underwater. Even cooler, when the beaver's little nose touches the water, their nostrils and their ear flaps automatically close. It's just so cool. (laughs) Well... I mean, to be honest, I can't be asked to do my fact because I know it's not going to be as good. (laughs) I mean, how can you top the dynamic trio of sphincters, ear flaps and nostrils? (laughs) I mean, you can hand it to me if you like. Well, well, I'm not going to... For the sake of the audience, I'm not going to just Well, so mine's (laughs) in a similar vein, really. It's a similar scenario to beavers adapting to their underwater world. So humans wear goggles underwater, yes. Um, I love a goggle. I can't see very well without them. And um, to an extent, uh, beavers also have goggles. Uh, now, run with me here. So they have a set of transparent eyelids, which are a third eyelid, effectively, that's called, um, got to get this right as well, a nictitating membrane, which essentially comes over the eye when they go under the water and protects and covers them, allowing just enough light um, to allow enough sight so that between the sight, the smell and their touch under the water, they have a pretty good idea of uh, what their underwater world looks like. So there we go. A third eyelid versus a sphincter. You decide. Not just a third eyelid, a nictitating membrane. I mean, that's pretty good. Pretty good. It was a good fight back. We'll see, listeners. Um, Remember, you can vote on who you think brought the best fact this week. And we'll also ask Rasheen to weigh in when we chat to her later. But first, let's get on with the episode. So science, it's all about science. How many times can we say science? Science Science. Week is upon us. British Science Week, as we said earlier, it is a 10-day national celebration of science, technology, engineering and maths. There's loads of cool stuff going on, brilliant voices from all of those disciplines weighing in on helping us get excited about these amazing areas of learning that we need to um, not overlook. So, of course, we've hijacked it and called it Beaver Science Week. Very brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) Naturally. Naturally. One of the things we love about doing this podcast is gathering all the latest sciencey bits and bobs and translating it into a format that makes it accessible to a wider audience. And that is essentially science communication. It's a really important, critical link between the scientific research and the people making policy or the general public needing to learn about this information. Um, And in this British Science Week, we should be promoting the range of careers um, that are possible in science, as well as singing science's praise more generally. 
Yeah, totally. And it's quite a new sort of branch of science in a way. Even when I was at school, the art of communicating science wasn't really talked about at all. And it's a really, really important thing to be doing at the moment as, you know, the climate is in crisis, biodiversity is in decline. We really, really need to get as many people on board with what exactly is going on. And some of the time we often forget, and I certainly do, to be honest, how much science is actually involved in ecology and conservation, which are sometimes referred to as the softer sciences, which pains me slightly. But I can understand why people would think that, because there's a sort of perceived lack of the number crunching and the endless equations and the really fancy sort of lab experiments um, when you imagine conservation being very much out in the field. But we want to change that. Yes, and especially when it comes to reintroducing a mammal such as the beaver, there is a huge amount of fieldwork, testing, data and peer-reviewed literature that must underpin key decisions to ensure that it's the reintroduction process happens for the best and in the right places and at the right time. We've seen this in the success of the River Otter Beaver Trial and in the Cornwall Beaver Project, um, where Exeter University, for example, has played a pivotal role in the science underpinning what has happened there in both those projects. Definitely. And, you know, essentially conservation and academia and science really do go hand in hand. And it's so, so important that they continue to do so. And the scientific method in this instance of gathering data and findings and publishing them in a peer reviewed way is really important to our work here in Beaver Trust. And we've actually formed uh, something quite exciting called a science panel, where we've got some of the leading experts who are in the field of beavers and ecology and river ecosystems at the moment that are doing some really amazing research research from beaver behaviour and population dynamics to water quality to how beavers can help mitigate against huge events like drought and wildfires and this research spans all across the world and it's really really exciting Um, and it's a really key part I guess of keeping the momentum and making sure that the conversation around all of this keeps going and there's that really key dialogue that um, we all love. Yeah are there any examples of some scientific research that you'd like to tell people about Sophie? that really hooked you recently? Um, yeah, one of the things that really caught my eye the other day, actually, was a really recent study in Switzerland, which showed how it did this really classic experiment of comparing two different rivers that were in areas of different geology. Um, and one was in a more agriculturally uh, productive area of land and one was in a a less agriculturally productive area of land and the results showed that actually beaver dams and the resulting hydrology and ecology that stems from them being present actually really benefits rivers in agricultural land and this has huge implications for introducing beavers in areas of prime agriculture because it shows that it can actually be of benefit to the crops being grown or to the farmer by just improving the general landscape so it's a really Mm. exciting um, bit of research in the beaver's favour but then obviously has implications for for how we manage those reintroductions in those busy areas. And actually that's often an area of concern for beaver Mm. introductions so that's a really relevant piece of science. And what about you Eva how about how about your recent forays into beaver science what's grabbed you? Well, interestingly, a paper this year by our guest today and some colleagues, Mm. which was able to clarify that beavers are not reservoirs of zoonotic disease. And it's another great example of where science can allay unfounded concerns of the public. 
Mm, definitely. And just a reminder, zoonotic disease is basically a disease that can pass from animal to human or human to animal, usually vertebrates to humans. So beavers and bats are a really good example of... Um, very topical. Very topical. <laughs> well, exactly. So this relates in a really key way to COVID-19 because this year it's been a really easy excuse almost to blame animals for the pandemic and bats especially um, for the spread of this harmful disease when actually really it's only just part of the story and what scientists are finding out is that what's more likely is the whole pandemic is actually symptomatic of how we've been interacting with the land versus an intrinsic problem with the animals themselves as actually all animals including us harbor disease so it's 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 poor mm. communication to place the blame on animals before we've really found out what's going on. Yeah, and science is absolutely key to saying mm. all this. Anyway, one person who has been making waves in the beaver science and fieldwork world is Dr. Rasheen Campbell-Palmer. Yes, she is a woman operating in a very male-dominated industry, but that hasn't stopped her becoming possibly the leading expert in beaver management and ecology in the UK. Yeah, she's a really, really cool lady. And originally Total she's legend. from she <laughs> is. Originally from Belfast in Ireland, Rasheen started as a bird and reptile keeper for the Royal Zoological Society for Scotland. And she worked her way up to conservation projects manager for thirteen years. And then her love of beavers and their restoration took her to Norway, um, where she studied for her PhD. And then since then, she was the field operations manager for the Scottish Beaver Trial between 2010 and 2014. And now she's largely responsible and we thank her for it, for the safe passage of beavers all over Britain. And she's nothing short of a true inspiration. Yes, in fact, last year she was recognised for that in the Nature of Scotland 2020 Awards, where she won the Conservation Science Award. So, uh, and huge amounts of praise and recognition for inspiring so many um, with that award. So it sounds like it is time to bring in this week's expert guest, shall we? Let's. So, and joining us from Perth is Dr. Rasheen Campbell-Palmer. Hello, welcome to the Lodgecast. Hi. Hi, Rasheen. Thanks so much. No problem at all. It's so wonderful to have you here. And to start off the chat, of course, we are going to go straight into the fact off. So you've heard our beaver facts and we're dying to know what you think. Is it going to be the sphincters or is it going to be the third <laughs> eyelid? What do you say? What, what, what a choice is all I can say. I think I'm going to have to go with the nostrils purely because beaver eyesight is not brilliant, as we know. So even if they close their eyes completely shut um, while they're underwater, they're not kind of, it's nothing crucial. But it's very important that water does not go down the nostrils when you're diving. This is true. This is true. We have a very smug looking Eva over zoom right now <laughs> well deserved though well deserved we love a sphincter um <laughs> and nicely explained i like that it's not just a random choice but quite a logical progression of you know being Science. able to survive underwater <laughs> so um it's just such a delight to have you here obviously as beaver trust we you know you're one of the leading beaver experts in the uk um so we're very keen to hear your passion for beavers today and all sorts of the science behind things and the translocations and some of the amazing work that you do. But where did your beaver journey start? And wh when did you fall in love with these giant rodents? And, and why did you decide to make them the subject of your work at the moment? Wow, good, good question. Um, 
Well, it's going back a few years now. Uh, so I think uh, we're talking about 12 years ago now. I was a zookeeper. Of course, like many people, I did my zoology degree and swore I'd never work in a zoo because everyone constantly asked, <laughs> what are you going to do with a zoology degree? <laughs> work in a zoo? And I'm like, no, never. But I did. I ended up working in the zoo. And I think, uh, I mean, it's no disrespect to zookeeping or zookeepers. I got to the point where I felt a bit, I guess, disillusioned and wanted to do more hands-on conservation the way I saw it. And, um, you know, complained to my boss about this one day and uh, he was very forward looking, a kind of animal director, conservation director and said, well, we're thinking about doing this project about beavers. And of course, back then there wasn't really much chat about beavers, lots of academic debate and discussion about potentially bringing them back. But as far as we knew, there was no real kind of beaver projects occurring. So he basically said to me, I need someone to go out to Norway to um, collaborate with a university and a, a, a beaver professor over there, would you like to go? And I'm like, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since then, um, yeah, it's been pretty much full-time working with beavers um, from, you know, bringing them over for the first beaver trial. Uh, we got our beavers from Norway. So working with scientists in the wild over there um, learning how to trap and handle them, uh, learning what they needed in captivity. And then we arrived to the Scottish Beaver Trial. And yeah, I just started working there full time. I guess that was it. I was hooked. And it's been the journey from then. That sounds amazing. What was it like being out in the wild in Norway, you know, collecting beavers? Was it? Did you feel a huge responsibility for these creatures? Well, I, I, I was working with a fantastic team and um, like most Scandinavians, they were very, yeah, this is how it is, very blasé, very normal. And I was like, wow, this is, uh, it's two in the morning. It's, <laughs> um, we're on a boat, you're jumping out of a boat, grabbing beavers, basically. And um, as the spray comes in, it's turning to ice. So yes, this is not the normal experience. Oh, wow. But yeah, you're really thrown in the deep end and it was basically hands-on, handling, this is how you do it, go for it, get stuck in. So I really liked that and it was it was exciting and it was, yeah, very practical and you had to learn fast. And had you come across beavers much um, in your zoology degree and then in your job as a zookeeper or was your time in Norway a complete debut? Oh, that yeah, that was it. Um, th- they weren't a species um, that were kept regularly. Um, I think it, it's weird now because beavers are such a hot topic and mm. I feel like everywhere is talking about them. You know, Wales, England, Scotland, everyone is talking about beavers. But back then it just really wasn't on the cards as much. Um, Obviously, people knew and appreciated them from their ecological benefits, but it just wasn't a topic that was talked uh, about. And as I say, um, you very rarely saw them in captivity. They're notorious for not making a good zoo exhibit, so to speak. (laughs) Um, So no, it was not a species really on my radar at all. And then I just, I guess I just fell in love with, well, being out in Norway and um, just being so hands-on and practical and and having to do everything. The zookeeping background was brilliant for animal handling, health processing, all these kind of things. So I felt kind of equipped, but yeah, it was exciting new species to deal with and and not one I'd come across before. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And Rasheen, I think a lot of people 
don't realize how much of conservation is working with people and I know that you work with a lot of different people and probably more people than actual beavers at times (laughs) tell us a little bit about some of the challenges if there are many challenges of working with beavers and, and people and kind of achieving a balance there um well, I guess through all my life, I'm, I've always said I'm not really a people person. <laughs> you know, I consider myself an animal person. Um, and that's kind of hopefully where my skills are. That's where I like to be. But, you know, more and more, I'm just realizing my my job and obviously my day to day is is people interaction. And I wouldn't say people management, but people engagement. And it's not somewhere I really thought, you know, any strengths lay or where I wanted to be because I always wanted to work with animals. But, yeah, it's I mean, it's vital. and you just either not necessarily have to get on with everyone but you have to find a way to communicate with people and um, I guess every day is different which is why I like my kind of lifestyle but you know one day I'm, I, I could be working with a, you know a true beaver believer you know a fanatical fan um, and you know the next day you know, I'm working with people that are really struggling to, to find anything positive about this species and you have to just listen and you have to engage and I think you have to try and empathize and understand that you may not always agree but you have to try and and hear that person and find a way to engage with yeah them. sure good old listening skills so important one of the hot topics at the moment that you're heavily involved in and we don't want to spend too long on it but um the, the translocations and the lethal control side of things it's such a big topic and we'd love your expert view on it why are there some parts of the uk in which beavers are being shot instead of relocated elsewhere i guess uh, it's the first answer is politics, I guess, and that's that's a, a good get out answer, I guess. Um, <laughs> I think we're in different positions in different parts of the country. Beavers have been back longer uh, in Scotland, and you know we're looking at well over, or probably going into our second decade nearly here in Scotland. So I think. Um, sometimes I say, you know, parts of England are in their honeymoon period with beavers because there's low density mm. beavers in small numbers and still everyone is very excited and, that, you know, that's a good place to be. Um, but I guess in Scotland, um, the history of how beavers kind of arrived, I think, has... Um, put the backs up of some landowners because, you know, they see it as unofficial releases in certain parts. And those beavers went straight out into kind of very flat uh, agricultural landscapes that have been heavily modified. Therefore, this is, no, it's not impossible for um, people and beavers to coexist in such landscapes, but it's definitely more challenging. So I think you've got a build up of differences of opinion with actual real management implications but on top of that no real strong solutions um so we have to really look at how we we manage our landscapes and sometimes in the current conditions it can be a bit not possible to coincide with beavers and heavily farmed landscapes mm-hmm. so long story short i think um the the powers that be sought to put some control back into people that are experiencing significant beaver impacts that have no other options um, now that's a political decision and it's one I'm brief you know I'm trying to step away from quite fast but I think uh, you know I when I go in and engage with landowners it's you know we are where we are 
you know, there's disgruntlement about how beavers got here in the first place, and there's disgruntlement about how they're now managed. So I say both sides are disgruntled. <laughs> so yeah. part of a way to alleviate that, I think tra- that's where translocations come in. Now, um, translocations can't happen forever, and they have to be done in strict circumstances under license, and obviously with the animal welfare prioritised. So there must be suitable release sites, etc., for them to go to. If we look to Europe, throughout the history of the beaver comeback, and we know, and you've probably talked about it in other episodes, this has been a conservation success story with many countries experiencing this before us. And translocations were a vital part of their management. So I feel we're now reaching the stage where we've got, in certain parts of Britain, translocation is the management tool. Mm. And I would like to see it as a positive management tool, hopefully. I know it can be controversial. But, um, you know, without being too blunt about it, and again, it's not a portion of blame to the landowners that are seeking lethal control. But in some areas, it's either the beaver is removed by myself and hopefully goes off to be part of a good news story elsewhere, or, you know, it will be experiencing lethal control. So I am hoping this is a positive tool that we have to engage in at this point in time. And, you know, these are big, robust, healthy animals that are locally adapted to Britain. And, um, you know, there's genetic diversity in there that we want to preserve. So... Yeah, and of course, we talk about it in um, terms of numbers, you know, 80 beavers or whatever it was, but it must be quite an emotional thing for you because you see these creatures and you're with them. And how do you manage that side of things? Is it is it quite a stressful experience for you and an emotional experience? Uh, that bit isn't emotional to me because I have to go in and I guess my first priority is, I think, to engage with the landowner and alleviate their stress and, and their problems. Mm. So I think that's, you know don't sound heartless I kind of cut that emotion off then Mm. but when to me personally when I see the beaver swimming off the other end in the lovely project I feel that's more emotional part for me yeah but it's more when you know you're trapping up an animal um it's about okay let's let's get the job done let's safely practically and hopefully you know as as speedy as possible so that everyone's happy do they generally come into the traps that you set or can it be quite an arduous process trying to catch them do you have escapees oh yeah Uh, (laughs) yeah Uh, you know when I open up a new site I often get the question well how long will this take and I'm like it can take two days or it can take months (laughs) it really depends you know I don't want to cast dispersions on a beaver's intelligence but I say usually you get the keen one first and the rest of the family um, will go hang on a minute Um, no and there's some that are very evasive and definitely are outsmarting us for sure that's cool (laughs) and I guess one of the things that again I think we overlook is assessing the health of the beavers between point a and point b when you're translocating them what does this process look like and and what sort of things are you looking for in their sort of veterinary health before you can say okay this beaver is okay to stay um, and isn't carrying anything or won't introduce anything to this new environment yeah, and to me, that's a vital part. I mean, we, we cannot be using translocation as a tool unless we're doing it responsibly. And, mm. you know, that that ultimately means, well, when we health screen a beaver, the first thing is, is this animal suitable for re-release? Now, that's not just from a purely kind of um, disease point of view, but the animal itself, uh, you know, will it suffer per welfare if we put it out again? And obviously, the sites where we're releasing them are vetted. But, you know, if an animal is heavily injured or mm. it's just not going to make a release, then, you know, there's also ethical questions 
that you can't put that animal out. Luckily, we've not got any of that experience the date. Um, I must say that animals that we trap are, are robust. <laughs> they're, they're good conditions, sturdy <laughs> animals. But this the, the other vital part of the health screening process is, well, first of all, the animals will come in. Uh, they're given a physical examination by vets. And then we collect a whole range of kind of blood and fecal samples and run it for tests just to make mm-hmm. sure there's no diseases or parasites that uh, are being transmitted around the country. So that's crucial. And there's some things that we can treat in captivity, but there's some things if they did test positive, that would just be, you know, end off and the animal yeah. would be in the euthanized. Again, we've not had that to date, but that is a responsible part of the translocation process. And I guess their fertility as well is really important if ultimately you want to establish a breeding population. So is that something that's established when the beaver's been reintroduced or is it something, is that like a waiting game? Do you sort of wait to see whether they will start breeding if you introduce a mate? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, firstly, we try and... uh, when I'm scoping out a site for trapping, uh, you have to establish, are you are you going for a pair? Is it a family? And some of that you only find out during the trapping process. But from a, an ethical point of view, I'm trying to move family groups together as far as possible. Mm. So um, if it's a breeding family unit, then fingers crossed, they're still going to breed in the new site. Mm. In other occasions, um, we're putting pairs together you know, say a singleton is caught in one area, then we try to match it up with a similar sized animal and make sure they're not um, potentially closely related. So you're kind of mixing up the diversity a bit as well. And for new pairs going out together, that is a bit, see what happens. And yeah, that's that's out of my hands. That's uh... <laughs> How cautious do we need to be about the genetics of beaver populations in Britain? Yeah, well, I mean, we know only so many ever arrived here. We recently did a study on the genetic diversity in Britain, and you know, we can see it's 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 okay at the minute. Um, obviously, with any reintroduction, you want to put as much genetic diversity in there, kind of at the start. We're at a position where we can't really import and release animals, so we are trying to, as far as possible, make sure we're not uh, setting up closely related pairs when we're putting them into new projects. And uh, just to emphasise, most of the projects we're working on, it's usually centred around a pair or a family going into an enclosure. So that pair or family will just kind of breed. Um, obviously, the two adults will breed with each other. So there's not inbreeding between the family members. And then it's about management of the offspring. So I would say, you know, it's not like um, there's lots of inbreeding going in everywhere, but there's some nod to the future about mixing offspring around and, and you know, making a concerted effort to make sure we're mixing up the diversity as much as we can. Rusheen, obviously, as you've said previously, beavers are everywhere in the news. Everyone's talking about beavers. But their story is very complex and there's lots of nuances and there's still many hurdles to overcome before their future is sort of safe and guaranteed. Are you optimistic about beavers becoming a normal part of the British landscape? Um, Yes, (laughs) I would say, you know, I want to be and I am optimistic. I think sometimes it feels like it has been a bit of a a struggle and a long slog. And I, as you said, it's, it is complex. And there's no other species we're really dealing with that can modify the habitat around them as much. Mm. And I, that's why, you know, I do empathise with landowners and you know those people that are experiencing beaver impacts and i don't think we should dismiss those people or their concerns 
but you know saying that we have to find a way to support them and you know encourage them to live alongside beavers but not ultimately punish them you know if they if they mm. don't then they can't yeah yeah so so can we uh, do a fun one what's your favorite beaver experience been oh wow um god there's so many um i mean <laughs> The kind of gushy emotional one is I never get tired of 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 when I'm releasing them and and them going kind of hopefully off to a better life than you know potentially they've come from. But um, I guess a, a fun thing uh, this past year we've actually trapped uh, three black beavers, completely black. Whoa! So I knew these exist. Wow, that's awesome! And you know I read about them in books and in parts of kind of Eastern Europe. They're they're kind of quite common, I guess. But yeah, we'd never, I'd never seen or handled a, a real one. <laughs> so this year, or last year, we've we've trapped three, and um, yeah, that's just they're really, really beautiful, really lovely. So yeah, if you ever get a chance, I would say highly recommend to see some of the black ones. I can't even imagine that. That seems like such a sort of bizarre thought. You so you, we're so used to them being cute and brown. And is that just a, a, is it just literally their fur that's different or is there any other sort no, of morphological Yeah, it's just, just a fur. I mean, when we look back, beaver fur colorations are actually quite varied. And, you know, if you look back in some of the old, I think it's Russian literature, I mean, there's, there's spotted beavers and everything like that. So, I mean, really cool variations. And of course, the fur trade <laughs> historically took advantage of these different colors. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, the first time we're seeing some black ones turn up in Scotland and, you know, it's a recessive mm. gene and it's just coming through. But yeah. That's very cool. One to watch out Amazing. for. <laughs> it's like the beaver top trump in uh, wildlife spotting. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the black one? <laughs> Roisin, you've just had the most incredible career in ecology and science. And I think a lot of our listeners would, um, albeit appreciate the challenges that you that you have, but um, in your day to day, but also, you know, be very envious of the experiences that you've had. um, And just the sort of breadth of work that you've been able to do in the field. Do you have any advice for people who want to get into field work um, or science? And is it a rewarding career? Do you enjoy what you do? You seem like you do. <laughs> oh, no, I absolutely do. And even in days where it's rained all day and you're soaked and miserable and cold, I think this is better. So stick with it. Um, I think it, it's just you just have to keep going with it. And um, I think you can feel like, oh, there's no jobs out there and there's there's no kind of light at the end of the tunnel but uh, I mean I did a lot of volunteering when I was younger just always around kind of cat and dog homes vets you know just anything I could get my hands on um and you know yes there was lucky opportunities and I think it was just having the courage to say actually yeah just just take a change take a chance um I guess not getting too single-mindedly focused you know if, if things don't work out the path you you know immediately thought you wanted to go on you know tangents can can be just as good and I would say just keep keep working at it and um talking to people as well that's very very cool there's the quote tangents can be just as good for all you scientists out there mm. wondering what to do next <laughs> follow the tangent (laughs) thank you so much it's been really fantastic to hear what you've got to say a little bit about beavers i think we could probably talk about them all night and find out a lot more gosh wow is there anything that that wonderful woman does not know about beavers i mean i could hear her speak all day I'd like to find out a bit more about black beavers. That's pretty exciting. Same, me too. I just can't get over. I feel like it would be like a giant slug, like loping around a 
the landscape. It's just such a bizarre thought. A giant slug. Well, I suppose, that, yeah, yeah, that's a fair analogy. But also, I think um, the challenges about working in that field with, mm. you know, having to seal yourself against, you know, assessing a site and talking to people about it. And it's, it's a really interesting yeah. and complex role and job, actually. Yeah, it really is. And the fact that she... Um, it was a skill set that she didn't realise that she had or needed when she went into yes. conservation. I thought that that was really amazing. You know, it's really inspiring because I think it just shows that you can learn a lot about yourself during your career that you perhaps might not have anticipated. For sure. And if there's anything that's going to encourage people to get into uh, conservation fieldwork, it's the story of visiting Norway, oh. <laughs> being searching for, you know, beavers totally. at 2am. Oh, yeah. I'd love to do that. Anyway. I'd to be in Norway right now. right um eva bishop it's about time that we got stuck into this podcast other regular feature the quiz it's my go i like answering it's so much nicer so bring it on bring it on okay well um right so there's three questions of course as usual and the theme is collective nouns of animals and it is multiple choice, so you will have some help. We're going to go go straight into it with question one. Eva Bishop, what do you call a group of ferrets? A, a gossip. <laughs> B, a business. Or C, a conference. Group of ferrets. Oh, my. They're really good. Hazard a punt. Hazard a punt at that. Okay, punt is going to be a conference. See? No, no, wrong. Sorry. It's a business of oh, ferrets. <laughs> Just doesn't make sense. A, a business of a ferrets. conference. I don't know where I was going conference. with that. <laughs> um, question two. What do you call a group of rabbits? A, a cluck. B, a nest. Or C, a herd. I believe it's a herd or correct you could... <laughs> yes <laughs> or you could just call them a, a watership down of rabbits <laughs> oh, cry. Um, well done a herd of rabbits very good now Phew. final question for the win what do you call a group of toads this is my favorite one oh, awesome. is it a a bloat b a knot c a blot <laughs> oh my life it should be a bloat that's awesome but i'm gonna say what's the second one a knot, as in a, a um, like a, a knot that you tie. A blot of toads. I'm going to go with C. Wrong. It's oh. a knot of toads. No. How cool is that? <laughs> I mean, Amazing. you can kind of imagine it when you see two, you know, toads at it in a pond. You can kind of think think that they're knotted together in a in a weird way. Moving on. I suppose uh, well so. done. I mean, I, I think I think. <laughs> my, mm. You got one question right. Oh, it was do hard. Better. I'll give you that. It was hard, but um, <laughs> the pressure is on you now to um, whoop me, as it were, next month. <laughs> awesome. Okay, I will do my best. God, collective nouns. That was hard. What's the collective really noun for a beaver? They don't have. Well, apparently it's a colony, but I think we can do better. That's what one of the things for Beaver Day that we're going to do. Yeah, brilliant. Bring a breath of beavers. <laughs> <laughs> or a bowl of beavers someone suggested a bowl once. of beavers that would be nice a bowl. big bowl really cute. right well uh before we go eva what is going on this month what are we doing well starting off with science week so do keep an eye out on our social media this week for some fun stuff we've got going on celebrating beavers and science 
Yeah, all sorts of things there. And on the 7th of April, get it in your diaries now because, believe it or not, the 7th of April is the International Day of the Beaver. Now, this is an absolutely mega day for Beaver Trust. We're going all out. We're going to do loads of fun things. There's going to be some familiar faces, some famous faces. And in the evening, to top it all off, we're doing a massive fat old quiz to raise some beavers, money for beavers, Beaver Trust. Beavers, Beavers, Beavers. Beavers, beavers. So make sure you get it in your diaries and we will be shouting about it rather a lot over the next couple of weeks. Awesome. We've also got, a mere three days later, the Reintroduction and Rewilding Summit, which is being hosted online on the 10th of April. And Beaver Trust are going to be on two panels there. And we're also going to be screening our award-winning Beavers Without Borders documentary on beavers in Britain. So do have a look at that and sign up to that summit. Yeah, and Eva's going to be on two, or Eva's going to be on both panels that day. So um, make sure you tune in to see her and her element. It's going to be a really, really cool day. And um, finally, at the end of the month, we are launching our very first newsletter. So it's a free subscription. You can subscribe to it online. And please do subscribe if you would like to get all the latest news on beavers, science, policy, conservation, all sorts of fun stuff straight to your inbox every quarter. So make sure you sign up for that. Our voice in the community. It's going to be really fun. Well, that's it for another episode of the Lodgecast by the Beaver Trust. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your chosen podcast platform. Do leave us a five-star review, tell all your friends about it, and vote on our social media for your favourite beaver fact this month. Thanks so much again to the amazing Dr. Roisin for joining us this month. It was an absolute pleasure to have her on with us. And for more from us and the Beaver Trust, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Beaver Trust. Or of course, visit our website, beavertrust.org to read all of our blogs and sign up to our newsletter. And you can also go back and have a listen to all the other episodes in this series of The Lodgecast. This podcast, as always, is a mixture of fact and opinion. It was hosted by Sophie Pavel and Eva Bishop. It was produced and edited by Emma Brisdian for Beaver Trust. 